Hello and welcome to the New Zealand Initiatives podcast. I'm Oliver Hartwig. I'm joined by my colleagues Eric Crampton and Bryce Wilkinson. Welcome to you both. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. We want to do a bit of an economic roundtable discussion, except our table is not even round. And we want to talk about the four big issues of the week chosen by me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the four big issues I see are inflation. I want to find out from both of you how long is transitory. I want to talk a bit about supply-side economics because I had a column in the Herald last week and I was speculating that after everything else has failed in demand-side management, in printing money, in all sorts of government interventions, we will rediscover supply-side economics. And I just want to ask you both later whether we will ever see another Thatcher, Reagan or Roger Douglas. I want to talk about government competence and incompetence. There are plenty of examples we can cover, but in particular, I want to talk about the opening of Transmission Gully and the latest COVID testing debacle. And I want to finish with three waters, whether there's a hidden agenda, whether there's co-governance built in and whether there's a better alternative. But to start us off, Let's talk about inflation. Inflation, the latest actually from the Eurozone, 8.1. The latest from the US, 8.6. We are still at 6.9. But, I mean, that is age-old data. We're still waiting what it really is in the meantime. What's your feeling? How long is transitory? Maybe starting with you, Bryce. I think it's shorter than uh, people think, than many people think. It's uh, moving on us very fast, uh, these inflation figures. What we In June this year we were in, we're six months in. I think it's only six months uh, ago that central banks were quite complacent and relaxed about things. The next six months is going to be... Um, the same but, uh, dramatic potential for change. My question was really, how long is this going to last? How long is this inflation going to be with us? Well, that depends a lot on how they react. Um, I'm pretty pessimistic um, about a strong central bank reaction for the reasons we outlined in our report. Namely, that the faster and the more of central banks, particularly the European Central Bank, lifts interest rates, the bigger the fiscal problems that's going to be for Italy and the like. But and we got a yeah. massive response from the European Central Bank. They announced 25 basis points for July and maybe <laughs> another 25 for September. And they even stopped buying bonds. Yes. Eric, this will turn things around at 8.1% inflation. Well... <laughs> what, what, what's real interest rate still now? Is well, ne my, negative seven minus seven point five. Yeah, uh, no, that's not going to be enough. Uh, Eric, do you think it's worth explaining the Taylor Rule, maybe to the European Central Bank, well, or to seem, our listeners? They seem to have forgotten all this stuff, eh? Yeah, what should they do? I mean, they can either bring inflation under control or they can save Italy, but they can't do both. Well, you're the you're the Europe expert. I'm not. Uh, European Central Bank, though, I would have thought should only care about actual central bank issues, right? Maintaining credible inflation, not trying to prop up the fiscal balances of all the member states. That's somebody else's job. Shouldn't be the ECB's job. Yeah. But then again, central banks should really look after central banking issues. And we've all seen the speech from Adrian Orr this week. Yeah, there's a little bit of a surprise. Uh, I'm not sure that monetary policy really needs decolonizing. Yeah, that was a bit weird. What was your take on that, Bryce? And maybe we should just explain what it was. Um, Adrian Orr gave a speech to an international banking forum, and um, we would have all expected to hear something about inflation and how to get out of the current economic mess. And instead he talked about, once again, why they chose Te Aramari as their guiding strategy, and there was nothing about inflation. No, that was very unnerving. Um, you'd want a central bank at a time, particularly at a time like this, focused on the one thing that's, that's most important for the community, 
that is um, maintaining and, and uh, sustaining stability in the general level of prices. Um, here we've got it off on all sorts of tangents. Uh, the price stability objective utterly uh, uh, compromised at risk, and he's not even talking about it. Like there are plenty of areas where you can see there's like direct reasons to think there would be lots of insights to be gained from indigenous knowledge, uh, managing of fish stocks, of uh, shellfish, traditional management pro uh, programs around all of those. You can imagine that there's that there's still stuff to learn out of that. I'm not convinced that there was actually a monetary economy prior to Europeans arriving in New Zealand. It was more barter, but I'm not a history guy. Bryce might remember some of this from New Zealand history classes. I'm Canadian. It was flex, flex for guns. Yeah, <laughs> but no, pr prior. Prior to this. Yeah. But <laughs> you don't even start getting into central banking or lessons relative to central banking unless you've got monetary instruments, right? You need to have something that's a medium of exchange. And that is, well, you get into fiat money, right? Yeah. And we don't, we, that wasn't in place. I'm usually critical when it comes to identity politics, but this was one of the rare examples where I thought, this is cultural appropriation. <laughs> so we've got a Reserve Bank governor claiming that whatever he does is actually informed by um, Maori knowledge, effectively. And then you look at the outcomes the Reserve Bank has produced when it comes to inflation, and you think, well, actually, if I were Maori, I would feel offended. Well, yeah, and we are pretty sure that inflation is worse for people in more deprived communities, that they'll have fewer, less access to hedging instruments, they'll have fewer inflation-protected assets. Yeah, it's just weird. So you probably found all speech just as irritating and potentially offensive as I did. Yes, yes. But not a great surprise, though. No, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> Um, there are two issues, as I see it. You know, one is, is the personality of the governor, and that's what we're seeing with uh, the speech like the one this week. The other one is um, what central banks are doing generally. And generally, the uh, New Zealand Reserve Bank's been doing more or less what the Australian Reserve Bank is and what all the others are doing. And I like Charles Goodhart's sort of one-liner on that. Uh, they're all doing the same sort of thing, and they've all got it wrong. And that's what we're observing is unfolding now. And all the central banks are now in trouble. They've create, done a lot to create the situation they're facing, um, which was basically to help governments get heavier and more heavily into debt at low interest rates. And, now, and, and the belief that they could tame monetary uh, inf inflation expectations. And that's now all come to custard. But all, all that said, I'd, you'd still think that New Zealand should be in a better spot for dealing with this than most places. We don't have the debt that's facing Europe. That shouldn't be a substantial constraint. That shouldn't see like Robertson leaning on or saying, oh, God, please don't raise interest rates because our budgets are going to blow out. We shouldn't be expecting that. We have a floating exchange rate traditionally, or at least since, uh, since I've been watching it here. Inflation in non-tradables has run high compared to tradables. As soon as Reserve Bank starts hiking appropriately, the exchange rate should appreciate. That'll bring down prices in uh, or price inflation in traded commodities coming in from overseas. That'll help things along once we actually decide to get serious about it. It's still a mess everywhere else. Yeah, we're we still a mess here. Yeah, like, but, we haven't gotten into it yet. But and we the are, more we speeches he gives like that, the more he will have to increase the OCR. Oh, yeah. Just to convince markets he's actually serious about monetary policy. Yeah. But uh, Eric's right. The good point is that he's capable of doing that. Uh, we're, we're not facing a, a government with a, uh, an Italian debt problem. Yet. So, So Adrian can raise interest rates a lot. 
without uh, risking the government sort of getting into serious. But then you start worrying problems. about other sort of political business cycle models, right? Because we are going into an election year. We know that if the Reserve Bank does its job, it's going to be hard to avoid at least a minor recession. You don't get out of these levels of inflation otherwise, or at least I've not really seen good precedent for it. No. Robertson isn't going to like that going into an election. It has felt like or is trying to pursue all of the other parts of the Reserve Bank remit where they say, here are the broad overarching outcomes that the central government wishes to achieve. Our lovely central government, we, we love them. We support all of their objectives. Oh, also we care about inflation and maximum sustainable employment. That big preamble in the remit, like you always worry that that's going to get leaned on for other purposes. And I keep thinking back to when we found in the Nixon tapes, right? So... There were all, all these debates about whether Nixon pressured Burns going back a long time in monetary policy. And some of these were the arguments around independent central banks. And so there were these debates about whether he actually had the Nixon tapes. That once they got released, they showed Nixon actually pressuring Burns saying, no, you can't increase interest rates until after it's too late to matter for the election. <laughs> you really hope that doesn't wind up happening here, but what the hell? Well, since we're talking about history, let's talk a bit about some other aspects of history. I had a column in the Herald last week. And I was just speculating what might follow economic policy-wise. Because if you go back to the big inflation of the 1970s and early 80s, governments couldn't actually cushion the economy anymore once central banks actually got serious and started bringing inflation under control. So the only tool that governments had to really revive their economies were on the supply side. So my question that I posed in the Herald was, are we going to see the return of supply-side economics at some stage? Because governments will no longer be able to stimulate their economies to life, and so they might actually have to do something completely different. Is there any chance, is there anyone around in the world of politics you see that reminds you of a modern-day Margaret Thatcher, Ronald Reagan, or Roger Douglas? Well, the act policy is, is definitely structure, structurally informed and supply-side oriented. But they're not going to be the ones sort of making the big decisions. I think, um, you know, it, it happens when all else has failed. You know, that famous one-liner that um, governments will do the right thing after they've tried everything else. And I think it's in Europe that they're the bigger structural problems. And Europe is closest to fa uh, facing failure, maybe the US too. Um, so it's it's in... Following that train of thought, it's in Europe or the US, I'd most likely expect to see politicians coming up who, who are saying, look, this isn't working, it's an awful mess, we've got to try something different. Yeah, we're, in, we're still in fairly different circumstances from the 1970s, right? So we talk about stagflation. In the 1970s, you had high persistent unemployment combined with high persistent inflation. Right now, we've got high and what's looking like persistent inflation, which will result in high unemployment if the reserve banks start doing their job, tighten up the money supply, hit interest rates. That will cause some temporary unemployment as everything readjusts. You hope it doesn't lead to stagflation, right? Because you, you will have brought down in inflation through that move. Unemployment temporarily goes up and then it'll level out again. So hopefully that all comes right. That then means that there is less likely to be the overall exploding of everything that means that all other options have been exhausted. But man, there's a lot of cause for it, even if we haven't had that. Or maybe not, because we also have at the same time a demographic shift. So 
The supply yep. side on the labor market is no longer there. So maybe we even avoid the high unemployment rates we had in the 70s and 80s. Oh, yeah. And there's policy decisions we can always have, too, around allowing migration again. That starts easing things on the supply side. But it's kind of frustrating because I think that it was back in May 2020, I was writing on, okay, well, this isn't just the kind of uh, May 2020, we'd just come out of lockdown. Monetary policy had eased massively, but we still weren't really facing the kind of GFC problem, right? We had these massive supply side issues, start outlining here are the supply side things that should be done to unlock a lot of this stuff so that monetary policy can do a better job. We've not really seen movement on much of that. There has been some easing in uh, zoning. So we're getting, we were in a construction boom, but that's hitting up against every other constraint in the system that blocks housing from getting built. Mm. All of these supply side policies of the past typically followed from collapses and from bankruptcies. It rarely ever happens that the public cries out for an economic reformer. Typically, these reformers come in when there's a mess that needs to be fixed. Is yeah. that what we have to wait for? Yes, I think so. <laughs> so it's pathological learning, policy-wise. Yes, yes. My, my scientist friends tend to think that human progress is always upwards, but I say to them in economics that's not so. Civilizations wax and wane. They, they prosper and decline, and... Um, that seems to be the human condition. Well, we have had a couple of good centuries of growth. Uh, the West has, yes. Hmm. And China, East Asia. There's been a lot of progress, right? There's been a lot of progress over the last couple of centuries. Now, over much longer time scales, then things can go pretty bung. Yeah, I was thinking of, of um, the Asian tigers as being part of the West, but... Yeah, and there's disappointing, you know, Africa's big, big problem. And and just look at the at the statistics on the number of countries which have got authoritarian governments rather than democratic ones and the indexes of economic freedom. There's a big proportion of the world's population aren't really living in relatively free economies. Topic number three I want to discuss, government competence and government incompetence. I'm looking at you, Eric. So we had two stories, actually, in the last couple of days that caught my attention in particular. One was actually a report about the cost of the opening of Transmission Gully, that new motorway connecting Wellington and the coast. Opening cost more than $300,000. Yeah, yeah it's $337,000, I'm pretty sure now from memory. Uh, I'd... I still had the Excel sheet open that had, uh, I'd been playing with working for families numbers, so it had all of the taxable income and amount of transfers and tax. Um, just looking across that, I'd, if you had a two-earner couple each on $55,000, it'd take them 17 years worth of their combined taxes to pay for that opening ceremony. This is all kind of rats and mice stuff, like 300000 here, 300000 there. It takes a long time to start getting to serious money, given the scale of government spending. But, but what does it but, tell but, us about government? Well, it... In the context of a project that was years delayed, and not just because of COVID, but just continued problems in contact and how the contracts got set up, how the government was running the consenting and all of that, it gets pushed out by years and years and years. It's massively over budget, and then they have a big party to celebrate it. And like how they much should be having an apology. How much can it cost to cut a couple of ribbons? I've, yeah. I've seen pictures of it, actually. It's one big ribbon. It's actually print, a printed ribbon. It has transmission gully all over it. So it was a, a, a purpose-made ribbon. <laughs> and you can see where some of the $300,000 would have gone. Look, I could totally understand this kind of... Like, imagine that transmission gully had come in under budget and ahead of time, and they had spare money left in the budget because they'd managed to achieve cost savings along Fireworks. the way. Fireworks. 
then you can say, well, you know what? It, they're going to spend $300,000, and that's just like a small amount relative to the savings that they achieved through competent management of this project so that we can get this highway. Like, you can forgive them a big party in those kind of circumstances, right? Or at least yeah. I could. I wouldn't get mad about it. This is just tone deaf. Yeah. How do you see that price? Uh, just symptomatic. I mean, the big... Just look at all the things the government's involved in, 40% truancy rates in, in schools, totally uh, government-dominated, suppressing competition from partnership schools, literacy rates declining, the health sector, awful problems, a lack of capacity in hospitals, good staff being overrun, overworked, underpaid, sort of chaos there. Um, social welfare, just a, a lack of interest in a social investment approach and actually finding out what works, sort of perpetuating intergenerational transmission of, of hardship and deprivation. Housing policy, sort of the, the zoning problem, the incentive problem. And I fear that the RMA reform is going to make things worse. So immigration policy, that's, that's another thing which we desperately need governments to excel at. Yeah. And every sign that that's a bit of a mess too. So well, there was a there was a headline that just came out today. There's a a set of I think it was 33 uh, hospital caliber nurse attended beds at an aged care facility in Timaru that just had to shut down because they don't have enough nurses. They're kicking everybody out in four weeks. Okay, first the government set, makes a policy decision to make life miserable if you're a foreigner living in New Zealand as a non-resident. You've got no prospect of getting your case looked at by Immigration New Zealand because they're all messed up. You've got no prospect of buy, ever being able to buy a house here because they say that you're just stealing a house from New Zealanders, even if you're like a medical professional. Then they take a policy decision. Okay, well, we're going to set these green lists for professions that we're going to have like a fast track to residents. And oh, nurses aren't counted on that. And, okay, well, now they're closing all of these facilities because we don't have enough nurses. Mm -hmm. The government seems to be of the view that it's just a bad thing if nurses come and work here from the Philippines and they would sooner, I guess, that people wind up dying in their houses, not getting access to aged care facilities. Yeah, and meanwhile, we can still find $337,000 to open a new delayed motorway. And that would have paid for so many COVID tests. That's the other story I wanted to talk about. So we had some news about some COVID testing fiasco. I've forgotten which number it was because we had so many of them. Eric, do you want to fill us in? Yeah, so yesterday I tuned in. Uh, there was, um, I saw the headline on one of the news sites, tune in for 1 p.m. briefing with Bloomfield on COVID testing. Oh, oh I haven't had one of these in a while. Something must be up. So I clicked the, clicked the link. And they had finally released a consultant's report on the testing fiascos out of February. So if you'll all remember, like time gets weird dilations lately. But in February, all of our COVID testing fell apart. So the PCR testing regime stopped functioning. They weren't able to process tests. They were having to ship some tests out to Australia. Nobody was getting the results back in time. You had regimes still in place where you needed to provide proof of a negative test for things. You couldn't get a negative test. You couldn't get any kind of test result. The whole thing was a, a complete disaster. And none of this was a surprise because well, I remember yes. you predicted that. Well, it, this was obvious to anybody with the slightest amount of numeracy and the very the smallest amount of understanding of how testing worked, right? So here's the problem. And this was dead obvious. So one of the ways that the increased testing capacity in 2021 was through pooled testing. And that made a lot of sense. So with pooled testing, instead of taking each swab separately and testing it, you take a great big sack full of them, 
You put them in a test together. Okay, it's not a sack. They run a tray. They put like a dozen or eight. It depends on which tray they're using. It might be six. It might be eight. They run them all at the same time. And if one of them turns up positive, then they go back and check all of the ones that were on that tray. If none of them turn up positive, everybody gets a negative result. And you can have a big multiplier on your testing capacity if you run that, if positivity rates are low. Obviously, if you're expecting to get a positive sample on a reasonable number of those trays, you're gonna spend more time going back to test all of the individual samples after the pooled sample than you would have spent if you were just doing the individual samples on their own. So pooled testing is known to fall apart under high positivity rates. It this, is basic logic and we talked about it in November or December last year. So we, we've talked about this for a while. It seemed obvious here especially because it had fallen over in Australia in that predictable way in December, right? So as they hit their Omicron wave, their testing systems fell apart. You look around here, yeah, they're doing pool testing. Okay, this is mid-January. It looks obvious this is going to happen. Surely and the government told us everything is fine. We've got capacity. Nothing to worry about. Move on. The government repeatedly asserted that we had plenty of testing capacity, but they'd screwed this up. So I had a column on the 24th of January in the Dom Post where I just went through, here's a whole pile of things they need to be thinking about to be ready for the Omicron wave. We'd had the first couple of cases that, that had come through at that point in Omicron. You could see what was going to happen. And I had just two paragraphs in there saying, well, pool testing is going to fall over in exactly the same way that it did in Australia. Government needs to get on top of this. They need to be contracting with an external supplier who is not part of that overall supply chain. And now, yesterday, the government admitted it. Well, it took... I had it, to. Yeah. So there was a lot of statements in late January, early February about how awesome our testing capacity is, how many, like 60,000 tests or something could be done every day. They just hadn't understood it. So the report comes comes out yesterday and it says, oh yeah, well, uh, yeah, pool testing was never going to work under these kinds of conditions. <laughs> the modeling that the Ministry of Health was using, and I don't know whether it was them doing it or whether it was one of their external consultants that was doing it, but their modeling was looking at pool at Omicron rates only in the context of demand for testing, not in the, 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 what the effect it's going to have on the supply of testing, right, and testing capacity. But worst, very towards the end of this damn report, there's a sentence, there's a couple of paragraphs that say, well, and another problem was that, I'm paraphrasing here, you're going to have to go and read the actual thing. It's just too funny. It said that one of the problems is that the reports that were coming up from the testing group at MOH through to the Director General of Health, Ashley Bloomfield, and to the ministers, they don't say which ministers, but you can assume that it's going to be Hipkins and Little and maybe Varel, that the uh, reports were written in a way that was not cognizant of the pressures that ministers and director generals were under to be on top of lots of different issues. So as I read it, Bloomfield was just too thick to understand what was going on in these reports. Like well, Maybe it, he was overworked? Okay, Bloomfield's one big job is health, right? Mm. I cover basically everything. I don't know how many, what policy areas I don't wind up covering. I knew this was a problem. It takes the tiniest amount of numeracy combined with the tiniest amount of understanding how pool testing works to see this is going to fall apart. You don't have to be a rocket surgeon for this one. But Bloomfield screwed it up. He's going to get knighthood for it. It's great. Yeah. Bryce, I'm looking at you because you're so experienced. There was a time, a long time ago, when people actually got fired or resigned when there were massive issues and scandals. But here we have a motorway being open for 300,000. We have a testing fiasco. We have a reserve bank that is now about 5% above its target range probably. And nothing happens. And actually, 
we've got a Speaker of the House who was effectively fired and promoted to an ambassadorial post in Europe. Yes, yes. Yes, there's not a lot of discipline and there's not enough accountability going on. And even when you're the police minister under a lot of pressure, you keep your ranking, you just lose your portfolio. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I was complaining about this kind of thing on Twitter a few days ago and somebody was giving me shit saying, sorry, I probably shouldn't have said that. Oh, so, so, right. Somebody was giving me heck saying, oh, well, the, the, the story got reported in the paper. What more accountability do you want? Like, oh, come on. Well, what kind of accountability is that? Like the, the problem gets reported and then nothing happens? Like we could just keep getting these forever. All right, let's talk about the last topic I want to discuss, and that's three waters. Eric, we both had columns over the last few days. Yours was more optimistic, so I think we'll finish on that one because we always finish with something optimistic. Mine was more speculation in the Australian newspaper. I wondered whether all of the protests currently organized by the Taxpayers' Union and by various other groups against three waters have really much to do with water. Because actually for me, and that was the point of my article, it symbolizes something deeper. It is a coalition of people who are dissatisfied with the general direction of the government, who are probably dissatisfied with the prime minister, who are probably suspicious of the co-governance agenda of this government, and Three Waters gives them a valve for all of their grievances. Because actually it's not really about water, it's more about the general direction, and that's what brings them out to massive town hall gatherings all around the country at the moment. Would you agree with me that that is one of the factors? Well, it'll be part of it. There was a protest yesterday at a school in Christchurch where the prime minister was speaking that had a motley assortment of anti-vaxxers and Three Waters protesters. So there are underlying issues in how they're handling Three Waters. I don't like the seizure of council assets without compensation. Yes, in some cases, those assets end up having negative value if you include all of the costs of of bringing them up, up to spec, but it's not a good process. And there's a, well, we'll get into it later. There's a better way of running it. Mm-hmm. Um, this sort of thing should have the councils on side and a little better consulted on it. And Bryce, what do you think is the major issue behind Three Waters? Actually, it's two questions really. Is increasing efficiency in water services and improving public health really the government's main motivation or is it something else? And on the flip side, the people protesting against it, are they motivated by their fear of councils losing their assets that they paid for? I, I th- well, it's a mixture of things. I think the water itself is important in its own right. That people who've paid for those water resources um, do uh, feel that they should own them and they shouldn't be given away to someone else who's likely going to um, sort of take a cut out of it one way or another and probably hide what they're trying to do. So behind the reality of the thing is is the stench of being misled, and we saw one, I think was it the Gisborne City Councillor saying that he's been lied to. Um, And that strong fear, there's very strong reason to think that there's a whole co-governance agenda going on, which is undemocratic, hasn't been put to the people, isn't part of our constitutional structure um, of, um, you know, all being together under one government and one person, one vote sort of thing. So... That uh, yeah, that sense of unease about the integrity of the whole thing will definitely be part of it, and that'll be by partly why other groups are sort of who, who think that way are, are, are jumping on into this one and participating into it. But I wouldn't um, I wouldn't take away 
from the integrity of the people who, who are concerned about the water issue in its own right and see it as yeah. very important. Okay, then let's assume this mm. is just about water and efficiency. And Eric, you explain to us how you can actually manage this better than the government's proposal. Yeah, so there have been a lot of justifications that have been put up for how the government is handling this. Some of them are just red herrings, right? So there have been real problems in water quality. There's been the issue around Havelock North that keeps getting referred to. The government set a new water quality regulator on top of this. So whatever happens in three waters or whatever doesn't happen in three waters, there is a new water quality regulator that's supposed to be on top of that. So these are really separate issues. They shouldn't be conflated. Now, it might be the case that... All of the upgrades that are necessary for being able to deliver the quality of water that will be demanded by the new regulator will require some changes, but these are still separate issues. Okay, so it's not water quality. The simplest explanation for what's going on in all of the really convoluted governance arrangements around the amalgamated water entities is that they're trying to achieve balance sheet separation, and I'll explain what I mean by that. The big issue that council water authorities have faced in places especially where councils are butting up against their debt ceilings like the debt uh, once they hit 280 percent of their revenues they will trigger covenants in some of their bond issues they'll get in trouble with local government financing agency so they don't want to have more debt than that that means that if you're at your debt limit you can't raise debt to fund infrastructure in any reasonable way infrastructure that absolutely would make sense on any sane cost-benefit assessment cannot be funded and financed under current mechanisms available to local government. The IFF legislation, the infrastructure funding and finance legislation, doesn't do the job. It could do the job for some giant pipes in particular circumstances if you've got a, a really big capital raise ahead of that. That isn't the case in most places. So they're trying to achieve a mechanism that would allow raising debt. Now, if these amalgamated entities were just jointly owned by the underlying councils, then the underlying councils would be responsible for any debt that got issued by those authorities. And that would mean that the ratings agencies would say, hey, wait a minute, you guys have just issued another like $50 billion in debt, and you're already at your debt limit, and we know that you're going to bail these things out if it came to it. This is triggering all of your covenants. What are you guys doing? right? It wouldn't work. It wouldn't have achieved balance sheet separation. So that's what's really, be, to my mind, that's what's going on in all of these really convoluted messes of governance structures that seem designed to keep ratepayers and water users away from all of the people that are making the decisions around water. It's trying to set up a vehicle that can let them issue bonds that nobody would expect councils to bail out because councils don't end up actually kind of owning the things. But there's a better way of solving this problem, right? So for decades, the way that this sort of thing got solved was by ring-fenced debt issues. So the Auckland Harbour Bridge got funded this way. Other infrastructure used to get funded this way. And it's the most common form of municipal debt in the United States. There was a report by Charles Schwab just last year. I'm pretty sure it was last year. It might have been the year before. I'll have to double check. But it really doesn't matter. Two-thirds of the debt that's issued at investment grade by U.S. municipalities is of revenue bond form, not general obligation. A general obligation bond, that falls onto ratepayers and council's main balance sheet if it, something falls apart. A revenue bond is backed only by the revenues from a project. It is not general obligation. If that bond falls over, council doesn't bail the thing out. We, we issue none of that debt here. We only issue general obligation that winds up hitting the main balance sheet and triggering all these debt, debt limits. Now, if we just set 
one short piece of central government legislation, instead of all these messes in three water reform, design one small piece of legislation. This piece of legislation would say councils using this legislation are authorized to issue debt that is backed only by a specified revenue stream, not by general, not by the council's general balance sheet. In fact, there is no opportunity for councils to bail this out. If we see anything that looks like a bailout, we are going to fine council like 50 times as much as whatever we think is a bailout. Just set some kind of boiling and oil provision forbidding councils from bailing these things out. What that then does is enable councils to issue special purpose debt to achieve special objectives. So if a new water pipe could pay itself off based on water rates paid by people who use it, or a levy on the properties that are serviced by it, if it can be financed by those revenues, you set the bond, investors look at it, they look at the cost of the project, they look at the risk, they look at the revenue stream that's going to be coming from it, you find out what the riskiness is, market determines the price of these bonds, and you get infrastructure funded through that mechanism, financed by the later stream of, of payments from the from the beneficiaries of it. It and so, that is very similar to what we proposed about a decade ago, municipal utility districts. Municipal utility districts in the U.S. can issue this kind of debt. You don't have to have a municipal utility district to do it. Cities like Phoenix do it without one. Yep. I love the idea of them, yep. but it's not necessary. I especially love the idea of them if they are backed not just by like a, a fee for use on the water, but by a, um, a levy on the properties that are serviced. So in that kind of a setup, I really like the mechanism that we already have in place for setting business improvement districts. So when Karori uh, businesses wanted to set up a little association where they would levy themselves for improvements in the general Karori neighborhood, they had to pass a double majority threshold, a majority of property owners that are going to be levied by number and a majority of affected property owners by value of properties. If it passes that double majority, then they could levy themselves to fund the infrastructure. You could totally do the exact same thing for authorizing a revenue bond or infrastructure that services properties. Sounds like a good idea. I see you nodding, Bryce. What do you think? Yes, I think so. I think New Zealanders expect too much from government and government's involved in too many commercial activities which could be uh, given their own generation schemes and could be um, got off the balance sheets in, in a conventional manner. Um, Eric's proposal obviously makes sense. Um, I'm not sure when the better option is to commercialise, privatise or to use revenue bonds and retain government ownership, but that's something that should oh, sure. probably be decided on a case-by-case -case basis rather than by some general armchair rule. So, yes, it's frustrating that... Um, it is frustrating, but know. I think there are solutions, and we are supposed to finish on an optimistic note, unless right. you've got anything else to add. Are oh. there any other reasons to be optimistic these days? I was just thinking of other reasons to be optimistic around uh, revenue bonds, because it wouldn't just apply for water, right? You could totally imagine something, fu some future highway that would yes. be funded and financed through this kind of a bond. You set the big gantries up for assessing the toll, like we have around the toll roads in Auckland. The revenues coming from the tolls pay off the bond, which pays for the road. And you only build the road if it can pay for itself 
through the tolls and you don't do it otherwise. You get commercial assessment of whether you've got something that's actually adding value or whether you've got a boondoggle. Same thing for the Christchurch Stadium, right? If, if investors are willing to back a bond that pays off only out of revenues from the new... The, did I say convention center? I meant stadium. You said stadium. Okay, good. I confused myself temporarily. Is, it's that, stadium. is that the same stadium that currently costs about $25,000 a seat? Oh, it, they're looking at like $700 million. Now it's insane. <sighs> but city of less than 500,000 people, right? You can't spend... Okay. If the thing would actually generate revenues so it could wash its face... Bond investors would say, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll buy that. You sell me a 50-year bond that's going to pay me a 50-year stream of payments out of the lifetime of the, of the stadium, and I'll totally get that. But if I, if I, what I suspect is true, is actually true, that the thing is a dog and will never generate those revenues, well, investors are going to demand, well, they'll either have no price at which they're going to be willing to buy that bond or have a massive risk premium built into the thing, and then it just wouldn't get built. You need a mechanism that discovers whether you're building a white elephant or whether you have something that adds value. Revenue bonds do it. And that was loud and clear, and I think it was probably the most optimistic point to finish on, that there are solutions no, we just need the politicians I, to listen well, to them. Well, I would say that as long as you look outside government, there's enormous grounds for optimism. We can look with with the development of driverless cars to zero uh, deaths on the roads. Um, if they develop sort of cars that will fly, we don't need so many roads at all. The development of the vaccine against COVID was a phenomenal achievement. The, the advances in health... They're probably going to be seen in the next 50 years and health treatments are, are difficult for us to, to imagine. There, there's great grounds for optimism. Wonderful. We have achieved the impossible. We have finished an economic podcast with two economists ending on an optimistic, positive note. And on that note, it can't get any better. And that's where we finish here. Thank you, Eric and Bryce. Thanks. Okay. Thanks.